Good morning. Our scripture this morning comes from the seventh chapter of the book of First Corinthians. Now, concerning the matters about which you wrote, it is good for a man not to have sexual relations with a woman. Now, as a concession, not a command, I say this. I wish that all were as I myself am, but each has his own gift from God, one of one kind and one of another. To the unmarried and the widows, I say that it is good for them to remain single as I am. But if they cannot exercise self-control, they should marry, for it is better to marry than to burn with passion. To the married, I give this charge, not I, but the Lord. The wife should not separate from her husband. But if she does, she should remain unmarried or else be reconciled to her husband, and the husband should not divorce his wife. To the rest I say, I, not the Lord, that if any brother has a wife who is an unbeliever and she consents to live with him, he should not divorce her. If any woman has a husband who is an unbeliever and he consents to live with her, she should not divorce him. For the unbelieving husband is made holy because of his wife, and the unbelieving wife is made holy because of her husband. Otherwise, your children would be unclean, but as it is, they are holy. But if the unbelieving partner separates, let it be so. In such cases, the brother or sister is not enslaved. God has called you to peace. For how do you know, wife, whether you will save your husband? Or how do you know, husband, whether you will save your wife? Only let each person lead the life that the Lord has assigned to him and to which God has called him. This is my rule in all of the churches. Was anyone at the time of his call already circumcised? Let him not seek to remove the marks of circumcision. Was anyone at the time of his call uncircumcised? Let him not seek circumcision. For neither circumcision counts for anything nor uncircumcision, but keeping the commandments of God. Each one should remain in the condition in which he was called. Were you a bondservant when called? Do not be concerned about it. But if you can gain your freedom, avail yourself of the opportunity. For he who was called in the Lord as a bondservant is a free man in the Lord. Likewise, he who was free when called is a bondservant of Christ. You were bought with a price. Do not become bondservants of men. So, brothers, in whatever condition each was called, let him there remain with God. This is what I mean, brothers. The appointed time has grown very short. From now on, let those who have wives live as though they had none, and those who mourn as though they were not mourning, for those who rejoice as though they were not rejoicing, and those who buy as though they had no goods, and those who deal with the world as though they had no dealings with it. For the present form of this world is passing away. I want you to be free from anxieties. The unmarried man is anxious about the things of the Lord, how to please the Lord. But the married is anxious about worldly things, how to please his wife. And his interests are divided. And the unmarried or betrothed woman is anxious about the things of the Lord, how to be holy in body and spirit. But the married woman is anxious about worldly things, how to please her husband. I say this for your own benefit, 
not to lay any restraint upon you, but to promote good order and to secure your undivided devotion to the Lord. A wife is bound to her husband as long as he lives, but if her husband dies, she is free to be remarried to whom she wishes, only in the Lord. Yet, in my judgment, she is happier if she remains as she is, and I think that I, too, have the Holy Spirit of God. This is God's word. Thank you, Susan. That was a mouthful. Uh, Good morning. My name is Drew Bennett. I'm one of the pastors here at uh, Church of the Redeemer. Uh, If you've been praying for me, thank you. I actually ended up with pneumonia over the last couple weeks, uh, but I think I'm recovered from that and and back. We're in the middle of a series in the book of 1 Corinthians, Paul's letter to the Corinthian church. And uh, we have now kind of turned a corner and come to a section. If you look at verse 1, where Paul says, now concerning the matters about which you wrote to me. So Paul's beginning to take up some of the questions that the Corinthians had written to him about or some of the things in their correspondence to him that became matters of concern for him. And we're going to see it kind of falls out, issues of spiritual gifts, how to practice the Lord's Supper properly, whether or not Christians should eat food that had been sacrificed to idols and used in pagan idol worship. Okay, but the topic before us this morning is sex and marriage and singleness. And there's a lot here right? I mean, there's a lot that is confusing, a lot that is probably new information that if you read it, it may have gone right over you, but if we go back through it and you take some time to look at it, you think, good night, what, what is that? What does that mean? And so uh, the work we have to do this morning is really hard. And it's going to be a lot more teaching than normal because we just got to kind of slog through this part of the, the letter, okay? So we're going to do our best to kind of work our way through this big chunk of, of scripture this morning. Okay, here's the confusion. You know, there's a lot of confusion in the Corinthian church, obviously, around issues like, what are good reasons to get married? What are good reasons to stay married? Is divorce an option? What about single people, right? Should they seek marriage? Should they not? There's a lot of information here, okay? And so I'm going gonna, I'm gonna to try to slog through it with you and go at it as best we can. So here's what I want to do. I read this passage a dozen times probably at the beginning of the week because there's so much here and when you got a big chunk like this, you try to figure out how do I kind of bring it in and, and make sense of this. And here's how I think we can, we can do this this morning, okay? Uh, to get a handle on exactly what Paul's trying to say, I think it boils down to this. And this is what I want to meditate on together this morning, okay? There's this refrain that you'll see over and over again. Paul says it in different ways, but here's basically what he means. Paul says to the church, remain as you are. Okay, so verse 24, for example, so brothers, in whatever condition each was called, there let him remain with God. Okay, verse 26, I think that in view of the present distress, it is good for a person to remain as he is. Okay, and so this is what we're going to really hone in on this morning, this idea of what Paul means when he says to the church, remain as you are. Because here's, here's what Paul does. Paul looks at the single people in the church and he says to the single people, remain as you are. And so I want us to see... Paul doesn't assume marriage. He looks to the single people and he says, remain as you are, and I want to talk about why. But secondly, Paul then looks at the married people. He doesn't doesn't assume marriage, but then he affirms marriage. And to the married people, Paul says, remain as you are, and I want to talk about why. And then thirdly, if Paul says to the singles, remain as you are, if Paul says to the married people, remain as you are, if there's a broader principle of 
to all of us this sense of Paul saying, remain as you are and what that means. Then thirdly, where do you find the power, whether you're single or married or whatever the case might be, to remain as you are? Okay, so those are the three points. Single people, married people, and then we're going to talk about contentment at the end. So follow along with me, okay? Let's begin by talking about singleness for just a minute, okay? Because Paul looks at the single people in the church, and the first thing he does, he says to the singles, remain as you are. Look down at 1 Corinthians 7, verse 7. He says, I wish that all were as I myself am, but each one has his own gift. And then he goes on, to the, mar- to the unmarried and the widows, verse 8, I say, it's good for them to remain single. Okay, let me offer a few observations, okay? First, when Paul says, I wish that all were as, that were as I myself am, he's referring to his singleness, okay? The circumstances are unclear. We don't really know why Paul is single. Most likely, he's either a widower or his wife left him when he converted to Christianity. Okay, Probably. Uh, but but again, we don't we don't know exactly what the details are. But but Paul is single, and he's referring to his singleness when he says, "I wish that you would be like me." Second, what Paul teaches here is that singleness is not a scourge or a curse. It's actually something that's to be pursued. It's a gift. It has unique advantages. Okay, more about that in just a minute. Third, Paul recognizes singleness, and it's fascinating there uh, in verse um, in verse seven. He says that singleness is a charismata. It's a gift. In other words, Paul recognizes a Holy Spirit-generated ability to handle the pressures and struggles of singleness. So Paul says what he's teaching is is that singleness is a gift of the Spirit, just like teaching and encouragement and mercy and so on, okay? So those are kind of general, general principles as we try to get into this a little bit more. Now, here's what I want you to see. Paul does not assume marriage. We do. Our culture does, southern evangelical culture really does, okay? But Paul doesn't. He doesn't assume marriage. For Paul, marriage is something you have to be called to, and so is singleness. It's not a given. It's not always God's will. God calls some people to marriage, and he calls some people to a life of being single, either for a period of time with, you know, within a specific time frame or for their entire life. Now, see, Hudson Taylor, this is just to, by way of analogy, Hudson Taylor, who is uh, the founder of China Inland Mission, he, uh, he would go on speaking tours, and he would say to the people, he was trying to recruit people to the mission field, and he would say, you know, a lot of times we assume God has called us to stay home, and then we look for a special call from God to go to the mission field. And Hudson Taylor said that's all wrong. He said he believed that we should assume, because of what the Scripture teaches, we should assume that God has called us to go to the mission field and look for a special calling to stay. Okay? Paul's saying very much the same thing. We often assume God has called us to get married and then look for a special calling to stay single. Paul's saying singleness is not a special calling. It's not out of the ordinary. It's not God's plan B for your life. Therefore, if you're single, Paul says, remain as you are. Singleness is not a curse. It's not a sign that God hates you and is holding out on you. It's a gift. Paul says, don't run away from it. Don't hate it. Don't waste your singleness. Embrace it. That's Paul's instructions to singles. Now, this is a different way of thinking for a lot of us, right? 
And we have a lot of single people here. They all just happen to not be here this morning for some reason, which is just discouraging. Or maybe God's faithful. I don't know. Right? But if, but if you're here, you know, this, is, this is new information for a lot of people. And so I want to ask, why? What's Paul's reason? What's his rationale for saying to singles, stay as you are? And you, you find it down in verses 28 through 34. And so I want to I go back to that part of the passage, and I want to read it again because it really is just so helpful. Okay? So beginning in verse 28, Paul says, If you do marry, you've not sinned. Okay? There are good reasons to get married. Right, burning with passion is the main thing, Paul says here. So if you, do, if you do marry, you've not sinned, yet those who marry will have worldly trouble, and I would spare you from that. This is what I mean, brothers. He goes on, the appointed time has grown very short. From now on, let those who have wives live as though they have none, and those who mourn as though they were not mourning, and those who rejoice as though they were not rejoicing, and those who buy as if they had no goods. He says, for the present form of this world is passing away. Now here's the part. I want you to be free from anxieties, right? The unmarried man is anxious about many things, about the things of the Lord, how to please the Lord. But the married man is anxious about worldly things, how to please his wife. And all the men said, amen, right? Okay. And the unmarried or betrothed woman is anxious about the things of the Lord, how to be holy in body and spirit. But the married woman is anxious about worldly things, how to please her husband, and all the women said, amen, right? Let me take that bit by bit. Paul says the appointed time has grown very short. Verse 29. Verse 31, he says, the present form of this world is passing away. In other words, Paul's saying something has happened. The world as we know it is on its way out, and something new is coming, and that reality that is coming that's not fully here yet changes our approach to all of life. In Jesus Christ, the kingdom of heaven has broken in. And it's making all things new. The old is passing away, Paul says. The new is coming. This is a big word, okay? This is the eschatological reality we live in. And what Paul says is, is that it should loosen our attachment to the things of this world. It should break us free of the things of this world and make us attentive and impatient for what's still coming. That's what all that language there is about and verses 29 through 33, and I'm so grateful for it because it's hyperbole, Paul's exaggerating, and so yet again, biblical warrant for exaggeration, which I am a master at, right? Paul does it. It's it's helpful. He says, if you have a wife, live as if you don't have one, right? Not a very good marriage strategy, typically, (laughs) right? (laughs) But what he means is, is, Men, what your wife wants from you is not ultimate. There's something of greater concern. There's an allegiance that is a greater allegiance than your allegiance to your wife that should dominate your life and the way you interact with your wife. Right? If you're mourning, Paul says, live as if you're not mourning. In other words, if you're sad, remember it's not the end of the story. Jesus is making everything sad come untrue. So don't let your heartaches define your reality. Right? Same with the good things in your life, Paul says. Don't make them ultimate. Don't live for earthly loves, and on and on he goes on through this passage. So what Paul is saying to us is, is that the present form of the world is passing away. In Jesus Christ, something new is coming. Live for that new thing. Hasten its coming. Seek first the kingdom of God and his righteousness, Jesus said. In other words, we have a mission. 
And we are to do everything we can to see the mission accomplished. We're to bring every part of our life into alignment with the mission. And that's why Paul looks at the singles in the Corinthian church and he says, stay single for the sake of the mission. Paul wants them to maximize the freedoms of their singleness for the glory of Christ. Because see, singleness brings with it blessings and opportunities that married people do not have. Now, marriage brings with it blessings and opportunities that single people do not have. Each bring blessings that the other doesn't have. But the blessings of singleness that Paul is jealous to maximize is the blessing of not having to be constrained to build your life around another person. He says the unmarried man is anxious about the things of the Lord, how to please the Lord. The married man is anxious about worldly things, how to please his wife. And he says his interests are divided. I mean, there's a very real reality. We are finite beings. We have a finite amount of time and energy. If you're married, a large part of your time and energy must be invested in your spouse and your children. If you're single, there's a reservoir of time and energy that you can use in the service of Christ and his kingdom. So what Paul is teaching is single people have a greater capacity for a breadth of fruitfulness in the kingdom of the Lord Jesus Christ. And that's a good thing. Now, I know what you're thinking. I can see it on some of your faces. I'm single. Are you saying I can't get married? No. That's Paul's answer, no. Of course not. Paul says there's lots of good reasons to get married. But there's lots of great reasons to stay single. And so if you're presently single, your singleness is something God has called you to. Don't waste it. Right? For however long God means for you to stay single, take advantage of it. And if you're young, if you're here, teenagers, college students. Oh, wait, none of them are here this morning, right? They're all gone together somewhere. Young men and young women, if you're young, don't assume marriage is in your future. It's okay to dream about marriage, but it's okay to dream about a life like Amy Carmichael in India of singleness for the glory of Christ, for the sake of the mission of Jesus. Don't assume marriage. Marriage is not God's will for everyone. At least ask the question, right? I I think it is a faithful, parents, I think it is a faithful response to this passage of Scripture for us to sit our college-age kids down and say, ask the question, God, are you calling me to singleness or to marriage? How can I be most useful to you and to your purposes in Christ Jesus. And that, that's, that's radical, right? It's here. So to the single people in Corinth, in Corinth, Paul says, remain as you are, stay single. Okay, second point. Now then to the married people in the church, Paul looks at them now and he says the very same thing. He says, remain as you are, stay married. So verse 10, look there. To the married people, I give this charge, not I but the Lord. The wife should, be, should not separate from her husband, and the husband should not divorce his wife. To the rest I say that if any brother has a wife who is an unbeliever and she consents to live with him, he should not divorce her. Okay, and then down to verse 27. Are you bound to a wife? Do not seek to be free. And then down at the very bottom of the passage, verse 39. A wife is bound to her husband as long as he lives. So Paul's instructions to marry people are, is this. Stay as you are. Don't walk away from your marriage. Stay put. Divorce is not an option. 
Stay as you are. So this is less surprising, for most of us anyway. So we need to spend less time on it. But I want to ask the same question, why? What's Paul's rationale here for saying to the Corinthian church, those in the church who are married, remain as you are? And here's how I want to say it. Let's just, let's just look at some of these things for just a minute here, okay? Paul is saying to married people, stay as you are because marriage is a covenantal relationship, not a consumer relationship. Look at the language in verse 27, okay? Are you bound to a wife? Do not seek to be free. Again, in verse 39, a wife is bound to her husband as long as he lives. So married people are bound to one another. That is the word that was used that when somebody, when the, when the police came to, to take somebody to jail, the first thing they would do is bind them, right? They would put their hands behind their back and they would tie their hands up. Married people are tied to one another. They are bound. Bound to one another. That's covenantal language. And in a consumer relationship, you're only obligated to the other person as long as they're meeting your expectations. But the moment it becomes inconvenient or hard, you're free to walk away, okay? So let's put this in business terms. When the cost outweighs the benefit, that's the end of the relationship. That's a consumer relationship, okay? I had a consumer relationship with McDonald's, which ended the day Chick-fil-A opened in Winter Haven. Right? You with me? Anybody else? Can I get an amen? Right? A covenantal relationship is different. In a covenant, in a consumer relationship, your needs and rights are more important than the other person. What you want is what drives the relationship. But in a covenantal relationship, your needs and rights are secondary to your responsibility to the relationship and to the thriving and the flourishing of that other person. What they need from you is most important. What you want from them is secondary, and there's absolutely no exit strategy. You can't just walk away when it gets hard. That's, that's covenantal love. Love with no exit strategy. And Paul goes to great lengths in 1 Corinthians 7 to argue that for Christians, if you're here and, you're, and you say, I believe in Jesus, what God, I believe this to be the very words of God, Right? And his commands to be not a burden to me or an obligation that I kind of unwillingly keep, but these are the very words of life to me. Marriage then, no matter what the circumstances of the marriage, is covenantal. And marriage love is the most clear expression in human society of Christ's love for the church. Jesus Christ loves you and I with a covenant love, a never-stopping, never-giving-up, unbreakable Always and forever love. And marriage love mirrors Christ's covenant love for his people. And much of the detail of this passage, which we don't have time to get into, is Paul's attempt to flesh out this idea of marriage as covenant. We, literally, we could be here all day. Okay, but let me just draw your attention to a couple of things. I want to draw your attention to one theological truth and then two practical applications of that theological truth that make Paul's point. Okay, That marriage is a covenant. First, the theological truth. Look at verse 12 and following. Paul addresses a situation where a Christian is married to a non-Christian. Okay, if you're here and you're not a Christian, I mean, this is great insight for you right now into what Christians say they believe and and the implications of those things. So Paul says to a Christian who's married to a non-Christian, he says, even that's not a reason for divorce. And here's why. Look at verse 14 says, for the unbelieving husband, if you're a wife, 
is made holy by his believing wife. And the unbelieving wife is made holy because of her believing husband. Now, what, what in the world is that? And it means something like this. The commentators are really divided. It's hard to really know exactly what Paul is saying. But, but here's basically what Paul's trying to teach us. is that marriage creates a covenantal bond between a man and a woman that is so profound that it even dictates the way God works in the lives of those two people. Isn't that amazing? That the covenantal bond between a man and a woman in marriage dictates the way God works in their lives and in their family. So you have Paul saying that God's working in the life of the believer necessarily spills out of that person's life and impacts the people closest to them, especially a spouse. In other words, there's some sort of benefit, spiritual benefit that comes to an unbelieving person. They are made holy, Paul says, if they are in fact married to a person who is a Christian. Paul goes on to say, for how do you know wife, verse 16, whether you will save your husband, or how do you know husband, whether you will save your wife. So when a Christian stays put in marriage because it's covenantal and commits to putting the love of God on display in their self-giving covenantal love towards their spouse, God goes to work. That's what he's saying. Sometimes even to save that person if they're not a Christian. That, we could Listen, we need to talk for about an hour and a half more about that. Right? But we can't. That's the theological truth. But then what Paul does is he, he, he fleshes out a couple of applications of this theological truth. Okay? So two practical applications to illustrate what he's teaching us in the way this works about marriage being covenantal. Okay? The first practical application is sexual intimacy. Now, I didn't print this part of the passage because it was already so long. Believe it or not, there was more there than Susan actually read. Okay? But all the way, if you have a Bible, the beginning in verses 3 through 5, Paul takes up this issue of sexual intimacy in marriage. See, covenant love is unselfish. What the other person needs from me is more important than what I want. I'm there for them. Paul says that should be true of sexual intimacy in marriage as well, that husbands and wives aren't allowed to be selfish. It's absolutely mind-blowing. Here's what he says. I'll just read it to you. He says, don't refuse one another. Don't deprive one another. The wife doesn't have authority over her own body, but the husband does. Likewise, the husband doesn't have authority over his own body, but the wife does. Now, I know what you're thinking. You're thinking, that's in there? Are you kidding me? Right? And it is. And it's so mind-blowing that one of the pastors in our, in our preaching meeting on Wednesday decided just to camp on those verses and preach an entire sermon. He said, he felt like the scene in Rudy where the, the, the groundskeeper asked Rudy as Rudy's about to go out on the field, are you ready for this? And Rudy says, I've been ready for this my whole life. He said, I've been re- waiting for this sermon for my entire life. Right, because he wanted to just camp on those verses. It makes me blush. I'm very shy. So we're going to move right on. But, <laughs> right. Paul says, Paul says, and men, get out your pens, write this down. Right, women, same thing. Paul says that a husband has a claim on his wife's body. And a wife has a claim on her husband's body. And that gets PG-13 or worse pretty quick. So let's move on. But do you see see the covenantal structure of marriage? So first application is sexual intimacy. Second application. Paul goes on to talk about rules about divorce and remarriage. And this is, okay, this this is nuclear. 
And so you have to promise me that you'll come see me if you have questions about this because I just don't have time to deal with it in detail, okay? But Paul says, because marriage is a covenant, because it's, there's love with no exit strategy, okay? Marriage is covenantal, then divorce is not an option. Verses 10 and 11. The wife should not separate from her husband. The husband should not divorce his wife. This is teaching from, from the beginning in, to the end of Scripture. Jesus talks about it in Matthew 5, Okay? Everywhere, consistently, the Scripture teaches that divorce, at the very least, should be an absolute last resort. And we realize that there are times when things are beyond repair, okay? But what I want you to see, what illustrates the point I'm trying to make, is that according to the Apostle Paul, the covenantal nature of marriage even dictates life after divorce for people who've been married and then divorced. So in verse 11, Paul says, the, you know, a husband, the wife should not separate, the husband should not divorce, Right, But if she does, if it does happen, heaven forbid, but if it does happen, then she should remain unmarried or else be reconciled to her husband. Now again, there's so much there that I can't talk about today. But I just want to ask why. So Paul says because there's a covenantal, in, in marriage, there's an irrevocable bond. Marriage is covenantal. The two in marriage become one flesh physically, relationally, spiritually, and once that happens, it can't just be undone. So Paul says if divorce, you know, if divorce, divorce is an option, a very last resort, but even on the other side of divorce, then, then for the, the people who've been married who are divorced, they should, stay, they should stay unmarried for the hope that maybe one day they'll be reconciled to their, to their spouse. Because once you're one, you can't be one with more than one person. Right? Again, I know that's nuclear. Don't get caught up. What I want you to see is how it illustrates marriage is a covenantal relationship, not a consumer relationship. So Paul says to the married people in the Corinthian church, stay put. Okay, so here we got. Here we have what Paul's doing. Paul addresses single people in the church and says, remain as you are. He addresses the married people in the church and says, remain as you are. And what I want to say is either way, staying put in your singleness, staying put in your marriage, it's hard. I mean, being single is hard. It's lonely. Being married is hard, right? Putting the needs of another person ahead of your own daily, all the time, every minute, is a constant death. And so in either case, it's easy to daydream about how the grass is greener on the other side. So where do you get the strength then to joyfully accept your circumstances, whatever they may be? Because that's what this passage is really about. It's about contentment. Remain as you are, right? That just doesn't just apply to singleness or to being married. And so I want you to look at verses 17 through 24, uh, because that's where we're going to end the sermon this morning. And, and there, Paul doesn't limit it to singleness or to being married. He says, embrace your circumstances, whatever they may be, as the place God has called you. That's what Paul's getting at. Don't, he says, don't dream about being married. Don't dream about being married to a different person or living in a different house or a different set of circumstances. He says, if you do that, you miss out on the opportunity that's right in front of you. Wherever you are, God has called you there. He has a purpose for putting you there. So stay put and be fully present there until he calls you to something else. That's what faithfulness looks like. Contentment. And so that's where I want to end. Where does contentment come from? How do you get it? Now let me be sure we're all on the same page, okay? 
So let me define what I mean by contentment before we move any, any further. And I'm going to use Jeremiah Burroughs' definition from a rare jewel of Christian contentment, which is one of my top five books of all time. You ought to read it. It's amazing. Jeremiah Burroughs is a Puritan pastor from about 400 years ago. And he said, contentment is a quiet, gracious frame of heart that freely submits and delights in God's wise and loving disposal in every circumstance. In other words, contentment is trust, a quiet trust in God's sovereign order of your life, God's sovereign ordering of your life, whatever God is doing, wherever he has you, that he's doing good to you. What that means is is that if you're discontent, okay, if you're unhappy with your life, if you're a complainer or you're full of self-pity, if you dig deep enough, start to dig deep, and if you dig deep enough, what you'll find is underneath there somewhere, you'll find unbelief. The problem is unbelief. The sin underneath the sins of discontentment and ingratitude and mur- I love the word murmuring, right? Murmuring and complaining and self-pity. Joylessness is unbelief. The problem is I don't like what God's doing. I question his wisdom. I doubt his love for me. I struggle to believe that he's really for me because if he was, if God was for me, it wouldn't be this way. It would be better than it is. See, that's unbelief. And unbelief loses sight of the gospel truth that God loves us in Jesus Christ with a never-stopping, never-giving-up, unbreakable, always-and-forever love. Now, a lot of the time, here's what I want you to see, and I'm just about done. A lot of the time, we don't make that connection, but Paul does, and here's how I know that. In verses 17 through 24, I don't know why, I, don't, I, I started to think, I don't know why all the references, like big um, McDonald's references this morning, but the section in 1724 is layered like a Big Mac. Okay, you know the Big Mac. I'm not a Big Mac fan, but but uh, Big Mac is three pieces of bread that holds the, the sandwich together, right? And so, um, in verse 17, you have Paul saying, "Only let each person lead the life that the Lord has assigned to him, to which God's called him." And then in the middle, the middle piece of bread, verse 20, each one should remain in the condition in which he was called. And then again, at 24 at the bottom. So, brothers, in whatever condition each was called, let him there remain with God. So there's Paul's doctrine that he's working out, those three pieces of bread, so to speak. And in between 17 and 20, there's this big chunk of meat, right? And the same thing between 20 and 24. And the meat is there to help us overcome our unbelief and to find the strength to joyfully be where God has called us. So let me show you. Okay? In 17, in, excuse me, in chapter 7, verses 18 and 19, Paul, it's very odd. And I don't know if it was odd to you. Even when Susan was reading it, I thought, gosh, that's just so weird. Paul uses the analogy of circumcision. Right? And you, and you read it and you think, what is, what is he doing? And so just like in the church there are single people and married people, there are also circumcised and uncircumcised people. But what in the world do those two things have to do with one another, right? That's the, that's the question. So look at what he says, verse 18 and 19. Was anyone at the time of his call already circumcised? Let him not seek to remove the marks of circumcision. Was anyone at the time of the call uncircumcised? Let him not seek uncircumcision. So Here's what we know. From the other places in the scripture, we know that in the early church, circumcision was seen by some as something that gave you spiritual status. You were a spiritual somebody if you were circumcised and a spiritual nobody if you weren't. So naturally, many of the Gentiles who were coming to faith in Jesus, which was primarily a, a Jewish movement at the beginning, they would, they would be tempted to seek circumcision. It was a subtle strategy of self-righteousness. Paul's insight here is incredible. He says, look there at verse 19, for neither circumcision counts for anything nor uncircumcision. Now here's what Paul's teaching. Paul's saying 
that whether you're circumcised or uncircumcised, it doesn't get you anywhere with God. It doesn't get you spiritual status, right? And neither does being single or being married. And that's the point. See, at the heart of the struggle to be content and to remain as you are is this temptation to attach a spiritual status to a certain set of circumstances. That's unbelief. Because it's saying, I've got to have this, or, or you know, I've got to be this. Whatever this is, then God will love and accept me. But Paul says God doesn't love married people more than single people. Right? Their marriedness is not a sign of his blessing and favor that single people are missing out on. And God will not love you more if you sacrifice and grit your teeth and choose singleness for the sake of the kingdom. That's not the way to get God's love and acceptance. Being single, being married counts for nothing. There is no spiritual status attached to any set of circumstances. And you've got to know that or you'll forever be giving in to unbelief. Your life will be characterized by joyless, restless desperation for different circumstances. See, the battle is for unbelief. The battle is for faith against unbelief. And there's only one way. There's only one way to overcome unbelief, and that is this, that you have to die to the idea that your circumstances confer spiritual status, and then by the grace of Jesus, through the work of the Holy Spirit, you have to come awake to the reality of God's free grace in the gospel of Jesus Christ. What Paul teaches, what we believe to be true, is that God does not love us because we do it right. God does not love us because we are right. Paul says, verse 23, You were bought with a price. See, you don't have to be right. You don't have to get it right for God to love you. He's already dished out a fortune, the precious blood of his dear son, the Lord Jesus Christ, in order to have you. And when you see that, that is the death blow to discontentment because it crushes unbelief. See, unbelief says, unbelief says, you know, singleness, married, whatever the circumstances might be, unbelief says, I'm just not sure God's for me. Paul says, Of course he's for you. Look at what he paid to have you as his own. And if he did that, if he sent his son, the Lord Jesus Christ, for you, if he did that, then he's going to take care of you. You can trust him. If you're single, he's going to take care of you. He can help you deal with the loneliness. He can be a friend to you. He can be a husband to you. If you're married, he'll take care of you. He'll give you the strength you need to keep going if you'll just run to him. Wherever you are, whatever the circumstances of your life that you're tempted to flee from, you can be there. Not dreaming about being somewhere else. Be there because it is his love for you and his commitment to doing you good that has put you there. And it's his love for you and it's his, contentment, his, his commitment to doing good to you that will keep you there. You've been bought with a price. That's the power to be content. And that's the lesson we learned at this table. So let's pray as we prepare to come and celebrate this meal. Father, we confess to you that we oftentimes do struggle with restlessness and discontent and ingratitude. And a lot of times we don't really know why. We don't know the mechanics of it. We don't know why it is that we struggle so hard. We long for something to be different than it is. And, and we just can't get comfortable with where we are. And, and it's, just, it's just hard. And Father... I pray that you would help us to see what the real battle of our heart is, and it's the battle for faith against unbelief. And so would you so powerfully speak the truth of your love to us through this text? 
through your word and through your sacrament that this morning we would find faith coming alive in our hearts. That the shadows of unbelief would flee against the light of your love, the light of the glory of God in the face of Jesus Christ. So that we might be people, whether single or married, whether slave or free, whatever the circumstances might be, that we would be a people who are absolutely free to be faithful to remain where we are because it's the place you've called us to so that we might do the good work that you have put us there to do. Not dreaming about something else, but content, quiet, trusting your ordering of our life. Father, we need that grace. We need, that's the kind of people we need to be. And we need your help to become that kind of people. And so we pray that you come and work on us now as we come and gather around this table. And we pray in Jesus' name. Amen. <coughs> Amen. Uh, Please come tonight at 5 and join us for prayer. That is an important part of our life together as a church. It's the hardest meeting to get people to. Hmm. Right? 5 o'clock, we'll meet right here in this room uh, and pray together for about 45 minutes. So please come. Now, if your faith is in the Lord Jesus Christ, then the power to overcome your your grumpiness and uh, about the way your life's turned out, if that's the case, or however discontentment and ingratitude might make itself known in your life, the power to overcome it, is to know that no matter where you are, you've been sent there and by the love of God, and you will be sustained there by the love of God, and that is the promise of this benediction. So receive the benediction then, as the promise of God's never-ending, never-breaking, always and forever love for you. And then go in faith at the bare fruit for his glory. Receive the benediction. May the Lord bless you and keep you. May the Lord make his face shine upon you and be gracious to you. May the Lord turn his face towards you and give you his peace, both now and forevermore. Amen. Go in his peace.